Welcome to episode 70 of the Search with Canada podcast recorded on Friday the 17th of July 2020. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and today I'm going to be talking to you about vulnerabilities in the WordPress all-in-one SEO pack. We're going to be talking about the Systrix click-through rate study and what this potentially means for SEO and forecasting. And we'll look at an SEO split test by Search Pilot that has looked at results of bringing content out of tabs. So we're kicking off with probably the most urgent, maybe not the most important, but certainly the most urgent of this news, which is that there is a medium severity um, in that it's maybe a little bit unlikely to happen, but if it does happen, it's very, very bad. Vulnerability in the WordPress plugin all-in-one SEO pack. And this was discovered by WordFence. Um, if you haven't heard of it, WordFence is a security plugin for WordPress. Highly recommend it. Um, they're really geared up. There's a lot of stuff the plugin does to kind of harden your installation of WordPress. And as you'll hear in their blog post, they are very proactive in that if threats are discovered, vulnerabilities are discovered in plugins, they can actually, in a lot of cases, offer some level of protection through their plugin in the interim between when these plugins are actually patched and those vulnerabilities are fixed by the plugin developers. So I think it's worth mentioning, um, so there's loads of stats that are always talked about around WordPress and security and is WordPress secure as a platform or not and we see all these kind of terrifying stats about what percentage of hacks are done on WordPress. And I think it's important to say that um, while WordPress powers, I believe it's around about a third of all sites on the web, the core WordPress itself is pretty secure, of course, if it's set up correctly. The issues generally that I see with WordPress sites being hacked and why you see so many of them is a combination of the fact that a lot of websites rely on the functionality of third-party plugins for their website. And of course, these third-party plugins are made by people not necessarily associated with WordPress. You know, anyone can make and publish a plugin for WordPress. And it's quite common that even with the more popular ones, these aren't written in a completely foolproof way and eventually security uh, security holes, vulnerabilities get found, which is true pretty much of, of all software. The issue normally comes when the website administrators, the webmaster, whoever it is that's in control of the website is not keeping an eye on the updates. So a lot of attacks that happen against WordPress sites happen on an automated basis because these these publications happen and these security vulnerabilities are put into the public domain once they're patched. So for instance, this 
announcement by WordFence and we'll link to the blog post at search.withcanda.co.uk so you can read it for yourself in full but it goes into quite a lot of detail about how this exploit works. Now when this happens with other plugins what it means is that there are millions and millions and millions of installations of WordPress um, with specific plugins so people that are uh, that wish to do so can write scripts themselves that try to automatically exploit these vulnerabilities so a lot of the time when we see sites that are hacked it's not because they have been individually targeted it's because they've just been one of many that's been picked up with a script that's attempted to execute whatever it is cross-site scripting or uh, exploit this vulnerability and they've had success and then managed to do whatever that vulnerability allows them to do. So it's not that WordPress is inherently insecure, it's normally, uh, it's a victim of its own popularity and its own success in that if a vulnerability is published, there's a large pool of potential victims who may not be keeping their site up to date. So this one's particularly important as WordFence have written on their blog post, this affects potentially 2 million users, which is what they estimate as the installations for the all-in-one SEO pack. And they said, on July 10th, our threat intelligence team discovered a vulnerability in the all-in-one SEO pack, a WordPress plugin installed on over 2 million sites. This flaw allowed authenticated users with contributor level access or above the ability to inject malicious scripts that would be executed if a victim accessed the WP admin panels all posts page. We reached out to the plugins team the same day of discovery on July 10th and a patch was released a few days later on July the 15th. This is considered a medium severity security issue that as with all XSS vulnerabilities, that's cross-site scripting, can result in complete site takeover and other severe consequences. So they strongly recommend immediately updating to the latest version of this plugin, which is at the time of writing version 3.6.2 of the all-in-one SEO pack. And they, they mentioned there, as I said earlier, that if you are a WordPress, uh, WordFence premium customer, they automatically pushed out a new firewall rule on the same day that they found the exploit on the 10th which would protect against this. They go into some detail about how this exploit works um, and it's essentially down to um, the SEO metadata for posts such as the title and descriptions had no input sanitization. This meant uh, lower level users like contributors and authors had the ability to inject HTML and then JavaScript into those fields and therefore it would be executed when you view this all pages. So ideally, you know, those page titles and, you know, descriptions aren't somewhere Google's going to be executing or browsers are going to be executing JavaScript. So that's essentially what needed to happen and that has now been patched. So if you are running the all-in-one SEO pack on your WordPress site, make sure you update it as soon as possible. On this Tuesday, Systrix 
posted a really nice study about Google CTR's click-through rates. It was on the 14th of July. It's titled, Why Almost Everything You Knew About Google CTR Is No Longer Valid. And <laughs> what a lovely clickbait title. Uh, it's a really well-researched bit of data and content. I can see this appearing in many decks over a long, long time. Uh, so this is normally what happens when SEOs get fresh data like this from uh, from a good source. Um, so Sistrix have said, we've analyzed over 80 million keywords and billions of search results in order to better understand click rates in Google search. We were surprised as you are going to be in a moment. Throw your outdated knowledge about CTRs away and let's start from scratch. And they've given a really nice summary at the beginning of the post of what they think are the important results. So the, the few headline results here is the average click rate for a first position in Google was 28.5%. And they've said beyond position one, the percentage falls quickly. The second position click through rate was 15.7% and the third position was 11%. And if you go all the way to the bottom of the first page, the 10th position had an average of only 2.5% of people clicking on this search result. So before your mind starts spinning as to how you're gonna use these fresh out of the box, brand new figures in your forecasting, the next bullet point may dash those hopes, which Sistrix uh, says, global CTRs across all types aren't very useful because depending on the search intent and therefore the SERP layout, the CTR for position one will vary between 13.7 and 46.9%. Uh, so just to um, elongate all of the acronyms we use there, what they're saying is these average click-through rates aren't very useful because as the intent of the searcher changes, and by intent we mean whether it's a, a kind of a how-to informational search or it's um, a search for a very specific piece of information or an e-commerce like uh, transactional type search, that will change the search engine result page, the SERP layout. And the features and verticals that appear in a universal search result page will drastically affect how people interact with those results. So the first position in some cases was as low as 13, 14% of clicks and at the higher end was like 47% clicks. So that's like a four to five times difference, um, which is gonna make a massive impact. So I just jotted down like an example for you. If you were gonna forecast, if you had a keyword that you said, okay, there's 10,000 searches a month for this keyword, let's try and forecast how much money we could make from that if it's an e-commerce term and we said okay we'll assume we're going to convert at between our site will convert one to three percent of people into buying and on average those people will spend 50 pounds we'll say so with our first set of numbers if we had 10,000 people searching and if we took the bottom number and we said 13.7 percent of people will click on our search result we know obviously that's gonna give us around 1,370 visitors a month. And if we convert at 1% and we've got a basket value of 50 pounds, the maths I'll do for you says, we know we'd only make about 685 pounds a month in sales, which isn't great. Taking the other end of the numbers that Systrix has given us and compounding them with our slightly higher basket rate 
conversion rate of 3%. So if we said we had our 10,000 visitors again, but we had a type of search result where the 46.9% clicked on, that means we'll get around 4,690 visitors a month. And if we convert at 3%, it means we'd be making £7,000 a month instead of about 700 or under 700. So already there's a 10x difference between these two potential forecasts. And this is just playing with two variables. And re in reality, when you start trying to build these forecasts and models, there's a lot of other numbers that you need to estimate and plug in. And very quickly, your worst case scenario looks so magnitudes different to your best case scenario that really you haven't got a forecast anymore. You've just got a very broad range of things that could happen. And forecasting is a really interesting subject. I certainly know it's contentious. I've had a lot of discussions with people. Some people are very adamant that they can give accurate forecasts for SEO in certain circumstances and others uh, not so. My personal view is I think you do need historic data um, meaning as well you need to have tried to do some SEO because the, the other thing you've got to try and forecast obviously is uh, when you're doing these numbers is the amount of effort you need to put in to change ranking and essentially how what kind of how easily you're going to move through the competition so if you've been doing SEO for six or 12 months you'll have some idea of we're putting this much throwing this much resource at it and we've moved up this much and we've gained this much traffic or we've changed results like this and that's really helpful information. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in the same position and you've put all this resource into it and nothing's budged, you might be able to get a clearer picture of what's possible. So in terms of forecasting, I mean, to me, it means that you're modeling the future based on historic data within a, within a kind of acceptable range. And there are lots of components to that. And I think you know, I really agree with Cistrix here that you, we can't be using these global click-through rates anymore to try and make these sums work. Um, there's some really other interesting uh, kind of snippets in here. So they've said searches uh, for which site links are shown. So that's when you do a search and the result comes back and it's got an additional kind of four links normally for the site have got a much better click-through rate than pure organic uh, search engine result pages so that's the 46.9 percent and the other without the site links is 34 percent so that's like a 12 percent difference there the worst click-through rate is found on commercial searches where google shopping 13.7 percent or google ads 18.8 percent feature is shown so these are the commercial uh kind of intense searches where Google's directly showing products. And that really makes sense to me. We've seen this behavior as well, where especially with e-commerce sites, if people aren't using the shopping results, they might jump straight into Google images and do a visual search that way. I think it's worth bearing in mind as well that we do know from previous announcements that Google is gonna integrate that organic component into the Google shopping results. So this hopefully should um, show that the effect or the effect of this cannibalization of Google shopping results in the organic results will be lessened because we'll have organic results in there as well. Uh, featured snippets, 23.3% and knowledge panel features, 16.7% also reduce the organic clicks. And that's 
for me the so the knowledge panel and the featured snippets we know featured snippets are when you have the kind of position zero right at the top where google's taken a part of the text of a website and put it right at the top and the knowledge panel is google's knowledge graph normally on the right hand side and that's way higher than i thought it would be to be honest at 16.7 so 17 percent of clicks um the in general consensus is where there are more different elements and integrations and cert features you'll find lower click-through rates which is which is fairly understandable and for seos this means the search intent of keyword defines the SERP layout and therefore how many organic clicks you can target so this means that our search volumes alone are really not enough uh, to be going on we need to look at these different kinds of SERP layouts and model based on these so we'll put a link to this um, study in the show notes um, it's it goes through into quite a lot of detail uh, they give a lot of visualizations as well of the different click-through rates based on sort of organic SERPs SERPs with site links featured snippets uh, Google Apps uh, knowledge panels so it's a really nice one to go through and get a feel if you've got a client that's got these kind of SERP features appearing. Um, the conclusion they give is search volume as the sole metric for evaluating potential clicks has had its day. As can be clearly seen in the analysis, the SERP layout of the keyword must also be included in the evaluation. Only the combination of search volume and SERP layout results in a realistic number of potential visitors. Google knows how to direct the flow of visitors, the unmistakable direction either to a paid click out of the platform, like ads and shopping, or by keeping the user on the platform and meeting the need for information directly through Google, things like featured snippets, knowledge panels, Google Apps. The relevance of the search intention continues to increase. The user's search intention determines the SERP layout, and the SERP layout determines how many potential clicks an organic result can get for that keyword. So really, really important to think about. Um, and yet, no, should be no surprise there. I've talked about it before. It's something we teach in our SEO courses, which is that, you know, Google, no surprise, is going to do the things that make it money. And that means trying to achieve their mission of, you know, indexing and showing relevant content while at the same time either pushing you through their paid channels or keeping you inside their ecosystem. And again, all of these things will change. So um, some related news I picked up to this uh, via Twitter. Uh, I'll, again, I'll put a link to this tweet at search.withcanda.co.uk. A tweet by Jakob Motika, who showed an example of what appears to be another Google test, which is Google enlarging the font size of the first PPC and the first organic ad. Um, so if you have a look at that tweet, he's put some screenshots of examples that he's found where the first Google ad and the organic search result, the font size and the title is significantly larger. So again, it's it's worth a bet that this is going to uh, this is going to affect click-through rates as well. So none of this um, is ever going to be static, and it might change since you do your forecasts. But if you are doing forecasts, this Systrix study is a really good place to start. You shouldn't just be looking at search volume. You shouldn't be looking at global click-through rates. This is this is really helpful data for you.
And finally, I really wanted to talk about this. This is really interesting because it's a contradictory thing. It's a contradictory evidence to what I believed, at least um, after hearing Google tell me some things, which is an SEO split test by SearchPilot around bringing content out of tabs. And what I mean by this is where you've had um, content that's by default when you load the page not visible because it's behind a tab that you need to click on. So for instance, if you're looking at a product and you wanna see uh, like a technical specification maybe or delivery information that might be behind a tab you need to click. So this is a blog post by Emily Potter on the 10th of July. And again, of course, we'll link to it in the show notes at search.withcanada.co.uk. And this test was for Iceland. And what they did was they removed the tabs and accordions that were concealing product information like ingredients, nutrition facts, etc. when the page was loaded. Instead of this, they made the text visible on the page and they had a control and this variant and they tested this over desktop and mobile. Now, over the years, we as SEOs have been told different things by Google. Originally, I think it was around about 2013, we were told that any content that was hidden by default when the page loads may not be indexed because it's considered perhaps not that important. The logic being, well, if it's not visible to the user when they load the page, how vital can that information be? Now, several years have obviously passed. Technology has changed. User behavior has changed. And as we know, more people are accessing the web on mobile than desktop now. And this advice we were specifically told changed. So we were told by people at Google, hey, we understand that real estate on a screen is now at a premium because while more people are using sites on their mobile, it means there's way less pixels to, or way less space to play with than when they're normally on a desktop kind of large monitor. So the mobile versions of sites, we have to try and maintain the best user experience. And that sometimes will mean hiding content behind tabs. So we were generally told with, you know, a high degree of certainty that there's no real difference in whether content is hidden behind a tab or not. As long as Google can access that information, it will be indexed and it won't be considered any more or less important than if it was immediately visible. And this obviously made you know logical sense. Um, and this test essentially contradicts that. Now, there are a couple of question marks around certain bits, which I'll cover, but the results that Emily is reporting is that they had a 12% uplift in organic sessions when they put this change in place. So their variant pages, which are the pages where they've taken the content out of the tabs, made it immediately visible, they're claiming they have 12% more visitors now because of this, which is evidence to counter what we have been told by Google. Now, the only thing that I could think that might affect this would be, I don't know how Iceland were originally hiding that content. So if there are lots of different ways you can do this, if content was just kind of hidden by the CSS, by the styling, it's still very easy for Google to access that information. And I think that's kind of what they mean when they say hiding it. 
And of course, there are various ways that you could use JavaScript to hide content and load it in, for instance, when something was clicked on. And while Google will go through a rendering process where it tries to process JavaScript, Google's not going to just process any JavaScript that requires user interaction as well, because they have to be careful around triggering things on websites such as you wouldn't want Google trying to submit, you know, contact forms and things like that. So there is a possibility that how Iceland was previously hiding that content behind the tabs was in a way that was making it technically more difficult for Google to index that content. Um, however, my gut would say, based on the technical competence of this write-up uh, from Searchpilot, that that's unlikely. But I will um, follow up with Emily as well to see if she's answered that or if she can provide any more information on that because that's really, really interesting. It's not the first time this has happened. We've had other situations. Um, it's always around JavaScript in my experience where we've been told one thing by Google and sometimes another thing turns out to be true. So the one that sticks in my mind uh, was to do with canonical tags, which was um, Google told us that if canonical tags were deployed via JavaScript or, for instance, via Google Tag Manager, same thing, that they wouldn't be honored. And that was contrary to the experience that certainly my team had had because we had been deploying canonicals via Tag Manager and it certainly seemed to be working. And the amount of index pages dropped, we got more search traffic. And someone who was a little bit more thorough than me actually set up an experiment and proved that to be the case. And I don't think this is where um, Google are intentionally misleading us. Um, I think it's important to make that clear. Generally, you know, they I think they try and be very helpful and there's no, you know, there's no good reason for them to trying to be misleading people about a detail like this. It just doesn't make sense. And we need to appreciate that this process of crawling, rendering, indexing is very, very complicated. There's always going to be edge cases. Um, and, you know, there are possibly other confounding factors that aren't immediately obvious in this study. However, it is, um, it is interesting and it would make me think twice now before just very very confidently giving the recommendation to hide that content. So I hope you found that as interesting uh, as I did. And I hope that raises some interesting discussions, especially for those running e-com sites with tabbed content internally. And that's the end of this week's show. So we'll be back on Monday, the 27th of July with episode 71. As usual, if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a review, please subscribe, uh, link to me, love links, um, and I hope you all are getting on well and coming out of kind of lockdown, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Uh -huh.